<clears throat> so last week we finished off um, Acts chapter 17. Uh, Paul was, again, at the Areopagus in Athens, uh, this council, and really giving a uh, testimony about um, who God is. Uh, and we talked, a li- you know, if we step back and said, you know, what, how did Paul speak to the Jews? You know, he, he reasoned from the scriptures that the Messiah must die, that the Messiah must rise again, and that this Messiah was Jesus Christ. Um, when he gets to a mainly Gentile audience, uh, he uses their means of speech and rhetoric and, and speaking to the crowds, um, but always points them to the fact that what they worship is a false worship. And uh, so, so kind of explains to them, makes some connection points from things that they believe, but then really calls them to repentance, uh, that there's a judgment coming and that God sent uh, a man to render judgment and that we know that this man will render judgment because he came and died and rose again, that he has power over death and this man who has power over death will come to judge. And so... Some scoffed at him, mocked Paul, and uh, we understand that. That is often a reaction. People, the Jews scoffed at him. Uh, some were intrigued. They wanted to hear more. Often where Paul went, people wanted to hear more about what he said. And then some believed. Some believed. And that's where we ended up in uh, Acts chapter 17 um, when we finished off last week. And so picking up in, in 18... Uh, Paul goes to a, a new city, a new place, continuing his journeys from one place to another. And I, I kind of just stopped and thought, um, we're going to see actually Paul like settle down for a little bit, even though Luke goes quickly through uh, this passage. He'll actually spend one of the longest periods of time uh, here at this next city. Um, have uh, I guess you know? There's a couple couple ways we can kind of look at this. Has anyone ever gone through a period of life where they moved, you know, like every couple years, several times? <laughs> <laughs> I hear by that laughter that, uh, are you still in that season of life? <laughs> I hope not. And you, can, you, know, you can think about this a couple different ways. That um, Usually when you're younger, I mean, I think for us, uh, this is our longest time being anywhere. But before that, it was like every year to two years we were moving either to a new city or just a new apartment or a new place uh, from wherever we were um, before that, you know, some kids growing up in the military, you know, I guess not always the military, but it's often the case, uh, moving where their fathers move them. Some, if you're in the military, have had that experience in your own life. Uh, I found a similar experience with a job that I had um, where I traveled. Every five days, I was in a new, a new city. Um, I worked for different colleges, and so I was at a new college. And it was fun when I was young. Um, and there were good things about it. Like, what's a, what's a positive about moving around? Or if you traveled, traveling around from place to place, what are, what are, what are some, some benefits of that? You get to meet new people. You get to meet new people, okay? And so if you are a people person, that can be energizing. Uh, it can be a fun thing. You get to meet new people. Uh, have interesting stories that come out of the new people that you meet. What are some other good things that come out of, of moving around? With meeting the new people, you have to Okay. You have an opportunity to share the gospel with, with new people. Or be convicted that you're not. Or be, or be convicted that you're not. Uh, I think also with that too, um, meeting new people, you get in different perspectives on how people live. Um, you know, I, moving to California, it was like, hey, you know, people live much differently, you know, have different beliefs. Um, 
do different things. That was kind of something that we, we encountered in, in where, where we lived in different places. So there's a lot of positives that can come out of, of moving around. Um, what about, so, so on the opposite end, what, what's good about staying in one place? There's no place like home. Although home is where the heart is, right? Yeah, so. And your wife. <laughs> What's that? <laughs> and the wife's at home, you're away. <laughs> okay. <clears throat> so there's no place like home, but what, why is that? You know, what's... No bed as comfortable as yours. <laughs> <laughs> well, mine. No. <laughs> <laughs> we could compare. I don't know. So. The food's better at home. Food's better at home. Okay. What about not just not moving, yeah. moving around? What's what's I mean, what's good about about that? Place, maybe you know, you've got a ministry or something you can focus on for a long period of time and build or whatever. Okay, well, even if even if it's a, a ministry, I mean, you know, wherever we go, right? We we can minister, but we can have extended time with the people that are really relationships can grow deeper. You can get a little bit further along if it was a ministry, if it was a job. Um, if you have a business, you can grow a business it's a lot easier <laughs> staying in one place uh, often than, than moving around, um, it's depending on your business. So there's a lot, of, a lot of benefits of kind of staying planted in one area. Benefits of moving around, but benefits of staying planted. And we're going to see uh, when Paul uh, makes it to this, this new city that the Lord plants him here. And uh, we may not see it here in this passage, but you know, we'll, we'll kind of draw out a couple other things that come out of where he's at and, and the benefits of him sticking around in, in one place. And so, um, so, so really we're, we're seeing that Paul is going to set up a, a base camp um, in the next place that he goes. So starting in verse 1 of chapter 18, um, we see, After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. So right at the beginning, we see new gospel partners uh, that Paul will encounter just at the very beginning of this ministry, not knowing much of what's going on, but we kind of get a background for what Paul is doing um, when he lands in this new place. So after this is kind of how chapter, uh, verse 1 starts in chapter 18. And after this, what was the after this? What did he just do? He came from Athens, and he had just really come speaking to you know, the philosophers in the Areopagus. Um, and we don't see that they came with a verdict of saying, you know, we don't want you here, you're, you know, you're no longer here. It just said Paul left. Um, but after this, sometime after he had spoken to that crowd, he decided to leave. Now, it seems like because of that, he's done with that city. Um, sometimes you can pause and stop and think, well, why would, he, why would he leave Athens? Because some believed, and then Paul had to leave, you know, or Paul felt compelled to, to move on. He didn't stay there. He didn't plant a church there. Um, why do you think maybe he, he left Athens? This is kind of reading in between the lines, and we won't know for sure, but what are, what are maybe some reasons that Paul, you think, left Athens? I think he figured that his work was done. <clears throat> Obviously being led by the Spirit that he had done. Yeah. Do. Yeah, and there's places that Luke say that he was, he was led by the Spirit or that the Spirit, he wanted to go one place, but the Spirit um, 
would not allow him to go to a particular place. Uh, we don't see really any indication. There's no vision. There's no whatever. But Paul feels he's, he's moving on to the next place. Also seems that Athens was maybe his last stop or his, his final stop in his mind. Now, Athens um, was, uh, was a revered city, but we had talked that it was actually in decline. Mostly it was for tourists, those that were students, uh, you know, people studying art, uh, architecture, those things. The philosophers were there. So still kind of prestigious, but it wasn't one of the largest cities. And if you follow kind of uh, the major roads, if you, it's interesting, I looked at a map of all the different provinces of, of Rome. I think it was the map was like of 150 AD. So a little bit after this time, just to kind of see all the little pockets of who was in charge of what area, partially to see where um, this area that they talk about that Paul goes to um, but there was a major road that you know went uh, west. So after he left uh, Philippi, he would have gone west to you know, Berea. And instead of going west to the coast and then maybe going to Rome, he was redirected. And we talked about that, redirected down to, uh, to Athens, partially because the Jews were following him. But there's a major road that went, goes down to Athens, and it kind of dead ends there. And then that major road goes west through Corinth. And so he's just following the major trade routes. Now, Corinth is going to be the largest city. Uh, Thessalonica is going to be one of those large cities that he's already been to, but <laughs> Corinth is one of the largest cities, especially in that southern part of Greece. And so it was the capital of that southern part of Greece. And so and maybe in Paul's mind, Athens wasn't where he was going to stop. He was waiting for Timothy and Silas. So in maybe his mind, he's going to Corinth anyway. He's stopping in Athens. He's waiting, but he can't help himself. So he shares the gospel. He's actually asked to <laughs> go share his beliefs in front of the group. Some people believe, but whatever reason, we see that he continues to move on, that the Lord just doesn't have him settled there for any particular reason. It sounds as though maybe he had already planned with uh, Timothy and, and uh, Silas that they would meet in Corinth. Yeah, and there's, there's a, that's, that's, a, that's a good indication as well, because we'll see that in a second with, with what uh, we talk about, um, about in the next, the next paragraph. But yeah, when he, he's going to wait for them again. Um, presumably we'll see that he come, they come down to him and then he's sent back out, but going to Corinth. And so what was really important by, about Corinth, it was about 50 miles away from Athens, so a uh, two-day journey, likely. It was the capital of the Roman province of Achaia, which was kind of central um, and southern Greece. There was Macedonia, which was in the north, northern part of Greece, and then there was Achaia, uh, which was, was to the Romans, that province there, and Corinth was the capital. There was a, the southern part of Greece is uh, uh, Peloponnesus, which is kind of a, a, a uh, peninsula, um, but was a big chunk of southern Greece. And the way to get to it was through this isthmus, which is a little land bridge um, that Corinth was right in the middle of. And on the north side uh, and the south side of this isthmus on the coast were two ports. And so one port, you could uh, sail um, through kind of a corridor and make your way to Italy. On the southern one, you could sort, sail down to the Mediterranean, get yourself to um, you know, northern Africa or the rest of Asia Minor or wherever else you wanted to go. So there's kind of two major ports that are right there that, are, that Corinth is sandwiched in between. And because of that, it brought in a lot of trade. It brought in a lot of wealth. Um, but it brought in a lot of other things as well. Uh, it was known for kind of being a debauched city. 
There was a big temple to Aphrodite, which is the goddess of love. Um, according to different records, there was a, uh, over a thousand priestesses, which were temple prostitutes that were there. I mean, if you just can imagine a thousand you know, women that worked as temple prostitutes that made their way into the city. And the city was about 200,000. So if you think of like, that's a large segment of your population that is devoted to servicing people that went to the temple. And so that was a huge part of that life. They had the Isthmian Games, which was kind of uh, rivaled the Olympics. In some sense, were even larger than the Olympics. So a big cosmopolitan area. So again... Um, a large flourishing area, a central area for trade, um, you know, I guess in the world's eyes had a lot going on, but it was known as a place that was uh, known for its immorality. If you were to be a Corinthianized, it meant that you lacked morality and so, or, to, or lived immorally. And so uh, that was just something known of the city. In Paul's mind, you know, that would have been a strategic place to, to maybe set up that you could plant other churches. We see um, you know, some hints that other churches were planted in that area. Um, and then in his mind, I think one of his goals was to get to Rome. Um, we know that because he writes the letter to the Romans from Corinth. And that he states that as he wants to make his way to Rome. He doesn't get there. Um, in this this journey, but that is what he wants to do eventually. And so when he goes to Corinth, it says that he he goes there to meet a, na- a man named a Jew named Aquila, which who was a native of Pontus. Um, actually, the word that says that is that he found a Jew named Aquila. The idea that that he was looking for or searching for somebody named Aquila perhaps told by some in Athens, maybe some in Thessalonica, that there's this man here uh, that you need to go see. We find that he is of the same trade as Paul, so he found him maybe, you know, again, with that idea of, of kind of seeking out and searching, um, that he finds this man who is there. Now, it says that this man is um, from Italy, and that he had recently come from Italy. Um, so how is it that there is there are believers in Italy. So Paul meets this guy who's a believer. And again, now Corinth is on the fringe of his missionary travels. And places that he's going, you know, the gospel has not been preached. Um, but he is finding here a man who is a believer. And this man isn't from Jerusalem. This man isn't from any of the churches that he's been to. He's from another place. He's from the capital of the Roman Empire. Uh, where we see that we'll see that Christians had actually been pushed out of. So how is it that we're finding Christians in in Rome? How do we know that he's a believer? What's that? How do we know that he's a believer before Paul? Before Paul? Yeah, before he really talks to him. Uh, I, there's anything to indicate he was a believer before he met Paul? That's true. That's true. I, I'm, I'm making that assumption from who he's seeing that typically when Paul went to go stay with different people, he typically either went to stay with Jews, so it could have been just finding a Jewish brother, but um, I think in some sense, some, some commentators would say that he maybe was seeking out other Christians, and so he's trying to find somebody uh, that believes in that. We find later that when uh, Priscilla and Aquila meet a guy named Apollos, that he's sharing the gospel and they share with him, 
And so we don't see anything of any conversion along this story. So I, I'm assuming, along with others, that he's, he's a believer at this point. But you're right. We don't see that specifically in this text, that they were believers at this moment. But I'm, I'm assuming that to be, be the case. But there are Christians in Italy, and we'll see. Here, well, if we go down to verse, um, uh, let's see here. Well, so in verse 2. It says Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome, um, that Jews and Christians were both sent out of out of Rome because of an edict that Claudius had given. And if you go back in eleven twenty eight, that there would be a persecution by uh, in the days of Claudius during during this time. Um, so I would say, yeah, we don't have it from that from this. Uh, for sure, but I would say that he's probably a Christian. But we do know that Christians are there in Rome before this time, which leads me back to the question, how would a Christian come from Rome? Or how would... Well, they, maybe they got converted somewhere else and traveled to Rome. These guys are tent makers, right? Yeah. So is that, is that a nomadic type of job? Um, it, it definitely could be. I mean, if you're a tent maker, you'd probably go where the trade is good. <clears throat> in the few places that they are, they'll go to Ephesus, and they go back to... Uh, to um, Corinth uh, at some point, and they go back to Rome as well. There were a lot of dispersed <coughs> Jews that lived in Jerusalem during Pentecost. Yes. What's that? <coughs> yes, yes. And so it could be that, but even at Pentecost, if you look at chapter 2, verse 10, that amongst all the people groups and the languages that were spoken, it said that there were visitors from Rome that were hearing Peter preach. And so traditionally what's held is that, <clears throat> that from that, no matter who heard the gospel, even though they stayed a while and then eventually a lot of people had to leave because of persecution, that, a lot, that those that were there went back to where they were from and shared the gospel and uh, even set up churches. And so remember, Paul later will write to the Romans that he's writing to a Roman church. Even though he hadn't been there, there was a church that is established there. And it's typically taken by tradition that uh, Aquila and Priscilla were a part of that church from that time. Um, yes? My anointed study notes. Your anointed study notes. What do they say? Okay, what does your, what is, what is, what is the study Bible say? There was a church according to Romans 1. There was a church in Rome. Probably uh, Christians before Paul met them, uh, and that they had come from that church. Okay. Uh, yeah, and I, I would say that that's generally, <laughs> and that's generally generally how how it's taken. But I I do agree. You know, when Eric says, "How do we know at this point?" and we don't. Okay, we're we're taking the I kind say of experience. when you meet Paul. Yes. Yeah. He will later say that he, uh, you know, who he shared when he talks to in the book of Corinthians, he, he'll say who were the first people that were converted. There was a guy named Stephanus, and that he was the first to he was the first convert in Achaia in that area. Could mean well, it could be from Achaia. Also, he was the only one that he baptized, he and his whole household. So he wasn't involved in Priscilla and Aquila's baptism. So again, 
because of these things, and it's never mentioned later that they become believers, that we just take it that they were believers. Well, Luke doesn't, doesn't uh, again, emphasize that fact. <clears throat> and he says that they were Jews, uh, Jews that were expelled, that were, that were left from Rome. Now, originally, <clears throat> he says that he was from Pontus, which was from northern Asia Minor. Uh, Paul never really made it to that area either, but they had, you know, he was from there, made his way to Rome again, a good place to be for business um, in the capital city. And so Paul <coughs> says that, or Luke says that they had recently come from Italy <coughs> and that indicating that they left because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. There was a, um, <coughs> see the Roman, uh, you know, histographer Suetonius writes that Claudius expelled the Jews because they were continually rioting at the instigation of Crestus. So many people would take this person, Crestus, to be who? To be Christ, yeah. He just didn't know who it was and misunderstood who he was. And so that because there was all these arguments that were popping up, that the Jews were arguing amongst themselves... um, and causing riots because of this Crestus, uh, do we see that happening anywhere else, especially where Paul went? <laughs> that wherever Paul went, right, he went to the Jews, and he mentioned this Christ, and when he mentioned this Christ, that, right, that, that the Messiah, this Christ, had to die, that this Christ had to rise again, and when he mentions that this Christ was Jesus, that it's up to that point that... Um, that the Jews would sometimes uh, push back and cause these riots. And it was happening in Rome. And Claudius being in Rome said, well, get out. <laughs> if you're going to argue and you're going you're gonna to cause these uh, big commotions, <clears throat> that you need to get out. Which also, again, shows that there is the gospel being presented, the gospel being shared in Rome, and that the, biggest, the people who had the biggest problem with it were the Jews there. And so um, we see that that because of that, that Aquila and Priscilla had left uh, Rome because they were expelled from the city. It says that they were of the same trade. What was the trade that they were involved in? <clears throat> Tent makers. Um, and typically, you know, people infer that uh, trade was passed down from the father. That so it's inferred that Paul was a, a tent maker, that his father was a tent maker. Um, even though that he was a Pharisee amongst Pharisees, he had a trade as well. And this trade uh, allowed him also to kind of go wherever he needed to go. His tools weren't uh, a lot to carry around. He could carry it with him. He had, would have his own tent that he supposedly would have as well. And that uh, he'd be able to repair tents. And it would be a great business place to be, especially as people are traveling in and out of Corinth and having a large population there. So he kind of connects with this, this uh, couple, Aquila and Priscilla, who are of the same trade, presumably of the same background and beliefs from different places, um, have experienced difficulties with, uh, with Jews uh, up to this point. Their backgrounds also being Jews, and hopefully both of them have a heart for the Jews as well. And Paul syncs up with them during this time. And so where does it say that Paul goes while he worked? Right? He stayed with them, worked for them, for they were tape makers by trade. And where did he go? Verse 4, typical of most places that Paul went when he went to a city. He went to the synagogue. Yeah. Corinth had a uh, large Jewish population because of the economic flourishing that happened. There was different things that happened uh, uh, along the history of Corinth that we won't go into. There was a point in, in history where I think all the males were executed. Um, it was like 150 B.C. by, by one of the 
the Caesars, or maybe it was you know, 100 BC, something around that time. And by this time, uh, there was kind of a revitalization of people from different places. Uh, Julius Caesar had made it a, uh, uh, a Roman colony, made Latin the official language there. So it brought a lot of Romans into the area. It also brought a lot of wealth. Um, and, and also, when you have that happen, you have an influx of people trying to take advantage. A large population of Jews were there, and so they had, had, had made a synagogue in that city, which you see in a lot of large populations, uh, Gentile populations. And so he goes there, and he says not only to persuade the Jews, but also who? Who is Paul trying to persuade? The Greeks. Why is that? Well, why, why the Jews? Because, again, and we've talked about this in the past, when you go to a synagogue, you think mentally there's Jews only, but were there Greeks there as well? Yes. Yeah. So they would have been open, most of the synagogues would have been open for Greeks to come to learn about their God, not to share their faith, but to learn about uh, the Old Testament God. And so there were Greeks that were there. If you were typically considered a Greek, you hadn't gone through circumcision, but you would also kind of know that the person's background. But there were Jews and Greeks there. Paul would have been reasoning from the Scripture with them, again, along the same lines that we had just talked about. And so when we see kind of the same same thing go, is going on as any other city, but he's got a couple new people that he is uh, ministering with, He's got a trade that he's actually starting to develop. We haven't seen that yet, that he's a tent maker in any of the other places, although presumably he had done that. Uh, we'll see a little bit later that um, he relies on that trade a little bit more here than in other places. Um, but we've got, he's got new partners that he is with. And now he's got a new gospel work, and that's where we kind of transition to with this next paragraph. Verse 5, When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia... Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own hands. I am innocent. From now on, I'll go to the Gentiles. And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking, and do not be silent. For I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. So, going back up to verse 5, it says, Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia. So what does that indicate? They arrived, okay? So they arrived. So when Paul went from when, when Paul went from Athens <laughs> So when Paul went from Athens to Corinth, did he go along with Silas and Timothy? No. No. He okay. Proceeded he proceeded them. Now, did Silas and Timothy ever make it back to Athens? Because it said while he was waiting for them, he was sharing the gospel, then he was brought to the Areopagus. It's kind of one of those those areas that I don't know. It seems like if you read in Luke's account that he went and never made it back. But we see in uh, 1 Thessalonians 3 that Paul sent Timothy back up to the Thessalonians. Since Silas wasn't with him, that presumably Silas went up to Philippi because there was an indication in the letter to the Philippians that he was, you know, he was concerned about them and wanted to know more about them. So it's possible that that's where Silas was sent up, was to Philippi. <laughs> and Timothy to Thessalonica, and that they had gone from Athens up there, Paul goes to Corinth, and then 
Silas and Timothy came and arrived from there to kind of share and, and give word about um, what was happening. But at this point, Paul had already hooked up with uh, this other couple and at least now has, has some, some partners in the gospel that he is, um, you know, uh, starting to kind of feel out what he's planning to do, going to the, the synagogues and reasoning from the scriptures. Now, when they came down, it says Paul was occupied with the word. So he is staying focused on what his mission is in sharing the gospel with others. And we see a shift at this point from Paul's tent-making ministry to preaching um, more you know, I guess more centrally, although he won't give up tent making because for the sake of the Corinthians, reading his letter to them that he wanted to make sure that he was never a burden to them. But what we see is that when Silas and Timothy make their way back, um, Paul has indicated in his letter to the Philippians, he's indicated uh, in 2 Corinthians 11.9 that the, that the churches in Macedonia sent support for him in Corinth. And Paul uses that as, you know, leverage, like I could have, you know, relied on, you know, your, um, because I spent a year and a half with you, I could have relied on support from you, but I never did that. I worked as a tent maker, or the churches in Macedonia sent aid to me, so he could give up tent making a little bit, not have to be so focused on that, and able to share the gospel um, with those whom are in his ministry focus. And so who was his focus? His focus at the beginning is who? The Jews, right? So continue to go to the synagogues. We don't see any riots happening. We don't see any large crowds. Um, How his teaching is happening and what he's doing, it seems to be more subdued or at least not causing as much angst. But uh, he is going to the Jews and telling them that Jesus was the Christ. And then eventually, after time, either people believe or they what? Revile him, yeah. So they opposed his ministry. And as a result of that, and in some places, Paul shook the the dust off his sandals and said, you know, I leave you. Uh, That was typically done if you were in a particular city. In this case, he shakes out his garments. And uh, what does he say to them? From now on, I go to the Gentiles. That was his, you know, again, Jesus told him, you will suffer much for the sake of the Gentiles. But he says, your blood is on your own hands. And Paul is, is quoting amongst, you know, there's plenty of verses that you could go to, but one of the places that, um, that the prophet Ezekiel speaks of this idea is in Ezekiel 33, uh, verses 4 to 5. He talks about a, uh, a watchman and, you know, from, from a tower looking out to see if uh, anyone you know, is coming. And so, if anyone... Who hears the sound of the trumpet, so the watchman was supposed to blow the trumpet if he sees any danger. If anyone hears the sound of the trumpet, but does not take the warning, and the sword comes and takes him away, his blood shall be upon his own head. He heard the sound of the trumpet, and did not take warning, his blood shall be upon himself, but if he had taken warning, he would have saved his life." And really, Paul is leaving them with that kind of echoing in their ears, is that your blood is on your own heads. And so, I am the watchman, I'm blowing the trumpet, I'm giving this signal that Jesus, remember, same, same message, that this Christ would die, would rise again, but this Christ would also judge. And if you're not going to believe that Jesus was the Christ, who will come again, then your blood is going to be on your own heads. And that the, the prophet said that if, you, if he comes back, 
and comes back for judgment and you did not heed this warning, then you would uh, not save your own lives. And so Paul leaves the Jews and now focuses on the Gentiles. Again, so far we don't see you know, uh, a big crowd, a big disturbance, but where does Paul shift his attention to? He goes to the Gentiles, and how far away was a place that he was ministering at? Next door, door, right? So at this point, there is a a guy named Titius Justus in different, I guess, uh, translations. uh, One or both of the names are included, and sometimes the I is dropped and just says Titus. Um, Often uh, people would say he's got a Roman name, and Romans typically had three names. And so um, it's presumed or inferred that this might be Gaius, uh, Titius Justus, and Gaius was mentioned at the end of Romans, Paul would write the letter from Corinth and say that the household of Gaius greets you. And so this Gaius uh, might be the same person. Uh, A wealthy person, in order to have a place where uh, the people could go, Paul's not necessarily leaving uh, Priscilla and Aquila, to stay with them, but just going uh, and ministering at this place, and people would come and worship at this place. Unfortunately, it was next door to the synagogue, or maybe fortunately, because we see not only the influence that Paul will have being right next door to the synagogue, but also we see that the opposition that will occur. Somebody else is mentioned in uh, verse 8, a guy named Crispus. And who was Crispus? The ruler of the synagogue, so not only are we next door to the synagogue, that's one, one man's place, uh, a Roman, we are uh, having influence, it says, uh, at the ruler of the synagogue who believes in the Lord, believes in Jesus, and his whole household. Um, and so one by one, we're seeing people from the synagogue shifting their attention to this Jesus whom Paul is preaching. In addition to that, there are many Corinthians that were, uh, were coming to faith as well. And Paul says that they were also baptized. Now Paul in 1 Corinthians says he only baptized um, Stephanus and his household uh, when he was kind of making the claim that um, you know, he was only one minister along with Apollos and some others uh, and that he felt like it wasn't his duty to preach the gospel and baptize them. Why do you think that might be the case? If Paul preached the gospel and baptized everybody there, uh, what do you think could be the fallout from that? <clears throat> yeah. Yeah, there could be like, I owe not only my faith to you, but I owe my baptism to you. That there could be, again, starting to, to create an allegiance to a particular person, which you know Paul will later write when he writes to the Corinthians from, um, from another place, that he will write to them about these these factions that are starting to form. And so Paul knew even while he was there that he wasn't going to do that because the Greeks tended to follow certain uh, speakers, certain philosophers, you know, that was kind of in their, their background to follow certain people and to worship particular people. And so Paul didn't want to do that. <clears throat> so people were getting baptized, but presumably it could have been Silas or Timothy um, or even Priscilla or Aquila, if they were believers at that time, we'll presume that they are, uh, that are involved in the baptisms. But Corinthians are being baptized. Leaders of the synagogue are coming uh, to faith. Um, the, you know, the guy next door to the synagogue uh, is a worshiper of Jesus, um, living right, right there in the midst of that. And 
we see as a response to that, again, no opposition quite yet, but the Lord said to Paul in a vision something particular. Now, what did, what did the vision he get say? It was a, <clears throat> what did the Lord say to Paul? Keep What's that? Keep on preaching. Yeah. Yeah. So before he says keep preaching, he says, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Now, if he says, don't be afraid, what might that indicate? That he had been afraid, right? You know, if someone says, like, you know, <laughs> it's like if somebody says, like, hey, what's your, what's, 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 you know, what's your problem? And you're like, I don't know, I don't have a problem, you know. <laughs> Unless you're like, I have a problem, I'll tell you what my problem is, you know. So uh, if there was no problem, if there was no fear, it, it would have seemed odd. So Paul, you know, God is saying, don't be afraid. Now, again, we see that Paul, no matter where he goes, is bold in what he's doing, but what does his past experience might show him? <laughs> yeah, yeah, he could end in stoning, jail, uh, being, you know, in front of a tribunal, several tribunals, what's that? Yeah, yeah, exactly, could be rods, could be, could be all these other places, you know, all these things that, that Paul will later in 2 Corinthians indicate as his credentials, yeah, and, and explain, shipwrecks, you know, that'll end up happening, but, you know, uh, as he gets too close to the situation, as people are coming to faith, and even past history shows, where was this happening before? It goes back like, you know, I feel like almost a year ago. That in Jerusalem, these were similar things that were happening, is that as they continue to stay faithful to the gospel, eventually, people in the Sanhedrin started coming to faith to, you know, to Jesus Christ. And as a result of that, there were more imprisonments, more persecutions, more of these things. And as a result of that, when, when he left Thessalonica, what happened? And especially if you read the letters to the Thessalonians, you know, we have in, in church, um, what, what ends up being the fallout of that? He's chased out of the city. Was he, was he done with his ministry? No, he didn't leave people behind. What's that? Yeah, he did leave people behind. But Paul felt like he was, he was not quite ready to go, and he had to leave either on the cover of darkness um, or in some other means, uh, in order to to go to the next place, <clears throat> and so he gets this vision that's like that you know saying, "Don't worry, I want you to I want you to basically continue what you're doing, and I am going to protect you. I don't want you to be silent," which might indicate that maybe Paul was starting to you know pull back, maybe let some others um, you know uh, be on the front lines, and so uh, so the Lord is telling him, you know, I am with you. And not only that, I'm with you. No one will attack you to harm you. So that's maybe a comfort for him as well in his trust in in the Lord. And I have many in this city who are my people. And so what does that indicate? What's that? They're what? Yes. Now, have they they come to faith yet? Some. Some have come to faith. There are others still out there. Right, and so so Paul uh, is being told, "I have many in this city, so continue to preach my word, and you will eventually see those whom I've prepared for that day when you'll share the gospel with them, um, that they will come to faith." And so Paul is has been given this uh, <clears throat> this kind of message, and and Luke just kind of ends in verse eleven, says, and "He stayed a year and a, a year and six months teaching the word of God among them." This is going to be the longest that Paul has stayed in any one place up to this point. 
He stayed in a few months in, uh, you know, a few weeks in you know, Thessalonica, Berea, we're not sure, a couple weeks before he was running out of town. Athens, maybe a few weeks there. Um, but he hasn't stayed uh, for months, let alone over a year. The whole missionary journey for his first missionary journey where he went to Cyprus and Asia Minor and kind of backtracked and went back to Antioch might have taken a year and a half all in itself. Some would say maybe even a year. But he's staying in this one place for this one particular purpose, to stay there and to continue to preach and to continue to have, be in a place that's strategic for you know, sending out others for the gospel. Luke doesn't elaborate much on that, and a lot of that we have to read about uh, comes from Paul's letters. But what Paul is able to do while he's stuck in one place is he is able to write to others. He's able to write the two letters to the Thessalonians. He's able to perhaps write the letter to the Galatians, although that could have been done earlier. He writes to the Romans, the church in Rome. Um, and so that you know, whole doctrinal treatise, which we get, he's able to do while he's staying in one place. And so we kind of see the side benefits, even though Luke doesn't elaborate much on that. We see when we read the letters to the Corinthians, um, like what's been established in Corinth. We see kind of a growing church, a vibrant church, with a church with different, uh, you know, gifts. Paul has to talk about that, you know, and, and they're fighting over who's got what gift. But we see a diverse church that's growing and strengthening over this time. And even though Paul did stay a year and a half there, they've got a lot of cultural baggage. And when you do read the letters to the Corinthians, there's a lot of issues that Paul has to straighten out. And even though he st- spent his most time there, that doesn't necessarily secure a church in, in being uh, a church that's grounded. Well, of course, wherever Paul goes and wherever the gospel is preached, there will be new gospel opposition. And so this new opposition is here, but it's not necessarily new, and it doesn't force Paul to leave. But we see what the fallout will, will be in just a second. Verses uh, 12 through 17. But when Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal, saying, This man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, If it were a manner of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it is a matter of questions about words and names in your own law, see to it yourselves. I refuse to be a judge of these things. And he drove them from the tribunal. They all seized Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal. But Gallio paid no attention to any of this. So we read about a guy, that's, his name's Gallio, proconsul of Achaia, um, that there's a, a written um, somewhere uh, that was found that... Uh, from something that was attributed to Claudius, who was the emperor at that time, that Gallio was proconsul uh, from July 51 to June of 52. And so if Paul spent a year and a half there and kind of encountered Gallio somewhere along that time, that Paul likely made his way to Corinth in, in AD 50. From there, we can start kind of backtracking or starting to date certain things to figure out how long Paul stayed in one place or how he went to another place. And you can start creating a timeline from these events because Gallio was only proconsul, and it was typical that a proconsul was only around for a year. Now, who was Gallio? Um, as far as who he was specifically, you know, he was a friend of Claudius, um, but more importantly, I guess, he was uh, the brother of a Stoic philosopher named Seneca. 
who would have been wrote a lot on different philosophies, uh, was the tutor to Nero, um, and one of his advisors uh, escaped death several times. It was typical that if anything was presumed to be politically against one of the emperors, that the emperor would call on that person to commit suicide. Uh, a previous emperor had asked Seneca to commit suicide, but Seneca ha- happened to be ill at the time, and they thought you know, he was just going to die anyway. Um, he recovered, and so and the clo- and then and Nero took over as emperor, and so he actually, um, you know, uh, survived that. But there was a uh, a um, attack against Nero, and Nero asked all of his advisors uh, or certain advisors to commit suicide, and Seneca did it at that time, slit his wrist. Galileo would actually be asked to do the same thing, and uh, he would do the same as well. It's kind of one of those, like, it's great to be the advisor to an emperor until they ask you to kill yourself. Um, <laughs> so Gallio, though, at this time, you know, was a, a man of political means. Um, and you can read all about Seneca, you know, if you want on your own time and, and this sordid information about him. But well-connected in the end. And so what happened? What happens is that the Jews, right, it says the Jews made a united attack on Paul something that was preconceived of, thought of beforehand, and brought him before the tribunal. We've talked about the tribunals. Uh, this one was located in Corinth near the marketplace. Again, a court proceeding, typically a few people that were there, three are usually in a tribunal. Um, the proconsul uh, might oversee that, and we see that he is there during this time, and that accusations are made um, before this tribunal to judge um, one way or the no- another on a particular matter. And so what does it say that their, accusa- that their accusation was in verse 13? Yeah, worshiping God contrary to the law. Now, for, for Gallio, this would be kind of a bizarre statement because in order to worship God contrary to the law, now we see this in several different places when Paul was brought before a governing body, especially a Gentile governing body, that... Their accusation usually indicates a desire to create some sort of turmoil in the city. And being under the emperor, usually it was the job of the proconsul was to keep things at peace. That's really their whole goal. We don't want to cause any panic. You know, we are an empire. We're, we're ruling over people that aren't our own people. And anything that may cause a uh, disturbance in one area could cause a ripple effect disturbance in other areas. So keep your city at peace. That was really their main job, was to keep their city at peace. And so accusations of unrest were usually taken seriously. But for the Jews to say that they would worship contrary to the law would be kind of bizarre to Gallio because... Whenever Jews were persecuted in other Roman cities, the Jews were actually defended for the fact that the emperor has allowed Jews to worship freely under Roman law. And so they would actually be supported in that area. And for Gallio, remember Claudius ejected the Jews and Christians because they were bickering over Christus, you know, causing riots. So for them, they don't see any difference between Jews and Christians. It's just kind of one form of the same religion in their mind. So the accusation automatically undermines what was, you know, their their claim in saying that Paul is causing unrest contrary to the law. And so we see Gallio respond in just that way. He's like, this is just a matter between 
You guys, you like, it's an internal thing. You guys worship the same God, so take care of it. Even though they might protest, in Galio's eyes, he's like, I don't, I don't want to get involved. I don't care. This is kind of an internal thing. And so that's what he says, and then has them removed from the court, possibly by his guard. And we talked about this, I think it was in Philippi, where the guard has rods and, uh, to expel them out of the court. Well, what happens as a result of that? Kind of gets, gets rid of them. It says in verse 17, well, it says, They all seized Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue. So remember, uh, Crispus was the ruler of the synagogue. This is a new ruler of the synagogue who is not a believer at this point. And it says, Beat him in front of the tribunal. Now there's debate as far as who the all is. Is it all the Jews beat one of their own? Maybe. Is it all of the tribunal or the, the guard, which is probably two or three people, beat them? You know, it could be. Is it all the Greeks responded in a mob and beat one of the beat the leader? Uh, possibly as well. I kind of take it that it might have been Sosthenes that laid this accusation. That the accusation uh, was a poor, um, like the way that he presented this accusation wasn't taken seriously, and as a result of that, they kind of blew their only chance to get rid of Paul. And it's possible that they responded in such a way. Um, Commentators just don't have, you know, as far as like a one way or another, but that's kind of how I might take it. Another reason I take it that way is later we'll find that uh, Paul will write that Sosthenes, like he writes on behalf of Sosthenes when he writes to, I forget what, what letter it is, that Sosthenes greets you as well. And so we find that a man named Sosthenes, who is likely this man, uh, becomes a believer as well. And it's possible that it's, it's a result of this. So that's saying a lot. But it's possible. So Galileo just says, I don't want to get involved. I don't want it to happen. You know, just, just lets, lets them loose, which is kind of interesting as well. If there's this internal matter and Claudius has already expelled them from their city, that Galileo just kind of overlooks it. But it doesn't seem, seem any issue. We see that the vision that the Lord had that he, he you know, gave to Paul uh, kind of comes, you know, it, it comes to fruition here, or the fact that he's brought before, tried, but, but nothing actually comes as a result of this. And so it's interesting, though, that out of the year and a half that Paul, you know, spends there, that his entire account is actually shorter than his time in Athens. And so really, what's Luke's main objective when he's writing about what's going on? What do you think Luke's just trying to hit the highlights of? I think it's the shift in Paul's ministry from Jewish to Gentile. Okay. Um, that okay. Well, we do we do see that. So why I guess what I'm saying why do you see that as a uh, as his account of what went on in Corinth is uh, almost as brief as his account in Athens, even though he spent you know a lot longer time in the city. Yeah. Yeah. So Luke is Luke is recording, you know, main players that he meets, and we're going to see Priscilla and Aquila a little bit later. Um, what Paul is doing, and and kind of you know who he's sharing the gospel with, and exactly how the reaction, what's the reaction of the people, and what's the reaction of the city. We typically see that, like kind of as a whole, 
how are things, you know, left as a reaction? When he was in Athens, there was a reaction from the Areopagus. When he was in Berea, what happened? When he was in Thessalonica, what happened? Well, it leads him from one place to the next. And so far, we just see after a year and a half, uh, and we'll pick it up next week to see kind of what leads him uh, to move on. But it seems like he's just more compelled to leave uh, after this year and a half and what, what's going on here. That he's established his mission, he established his church um, as, he, as he feels, and then he, he kind of moves along. When we back up, some of the important things that we see, you know, is that the Lord's chosen are His, and that those whom He has, you know, predetermined will come to faith um, along His timetable. Everything else that we see is circumstances. Everything else that we see that are situations in our life, as far as jobs, who we meet, situations that happen, big things, um, also are from our perspective. But protection and persecution also come within God's sovereignty. And so we see that, the, that Paul will be protected as long as the Lord allows it. He will be persecuted as long as the Lord allows it. And then when those whom you know, the Lord seems fit to come to faith under his ministry um, are done, then Paul is done with his mission and he moves on to the next place. And so we'll see that as, we, as Paul gets to the next place as he moves along. So I want to at least kind of make sure that we got through Corinth, and then uh, we'll pick it up. He actually finishes his second missionary journey. We're still on his second missionary journey, but we'll finish that up uh, next week. You guys have any uh, thoughts or comments? I do. Before you dismiss, what's going on? What's Phil? Well, <clears throat> regarding the uh, blood being upon their hands, uh, in, in Matthew, when uh, Pilate tries to release Barabbas instead of Jesus, the Jews say, no, give us Barabbas. And they say, well, you know, what should I do with this man? They say, crucify him. Yeah. And he washes his hands. And the Jews say, his blood be upon us and on our children. Mm-hmm. And uh, so then there's, you know, Paul, probably the most Jewish of any of the apostles, uh, becomes through his experience in Corinth, God shows him he's the apostle to the Gentiles. And when he writes to the church in Rome, he tells him, I'm the apostle to the Gentiles. And also to Timothy, who was his companion there in Corinth, he emphasizes in his letter to Timothy that he's the apostle to the Gentiles. So it's a, it's a real shift here. And because of that, Paul puts a lot in Romans about the difference between Gentiles and Jews being broken down. And it seems to be the thing that angers the Jews the most. They're they're all about the Old Testament. They're all about Messiah. They're all about hearing Messiah. But when he gets to the point of saying, and he's included the Gentiles, they lose it, absolutely lose it. It was a big issue with the church themselves as far as how do we include the Gentiles, and it was some that say, well, they need to be fully converted, and it was a sticking point to them as well. And we'll see that increase as Paul later preaches in front of a Jewish audience, and once he says something about, and I went to the Gentiles, they cut him off and say, we've heard enough. And so, yeah. So, I agree. He'll still go to the Jews, but he is, uh, his main focus will be that you're rejecting me, you're rejecting me. The Gentiles are, are where my focus is going to be. Upon your children. Upon your children. So... Good thoughts.